about five years ago, I was working at a prison called Sierra Conservation Center. And I had this particular inmate named Stefan. And Stefan and I were the same exact age. He was born in September, I was born in August. Like, it was just a trip to meet this guy who was raised in completely different circumstances, the same age, just completely different opportunities. And as I got to know him and hear his story and more about him, we just grew close. And uh, one day he stops me in in the lab and he goes, Todd, I got to tell you the story about my life. Sure, dude, I'd I'd love to hear it. No, but but I don't want you to lose respect for me. I go, why would I? I won't lose respect. I'm kind of taken back by the respect thing because what's the story going to be? So Stefan, I sit down and he begins his story. When he was 13 years old, his best friend was the best basketball player on his team. He compared him to Kevin Durant. Just tall, skinny, athletic, fast, had a shot. He said he was just, at 13 years old, people were already scouting. Amazing athlete. And one day when they were all at the local corner mini mart, um, somebody drove up and shot him point blank out the window. 13 years old, dropped his best friend. Stefan said that the war was started inside of him. He was already getting ready to get beat into the gang and this, that, and the other, but the war had started. The hate, he was just, he was mad. So he found the gun. They had one gun amongst all of them. He found the gun, and he was going to go find this guy. He found out who it was, and uh, he was in the other guy's neighborhood looking for him, and he found his little brother, which was the same age as him, about 12 or 13 years old. And he started to slow down, and he, Stefan looks at him, and he goes, man, I don't know. We're good, man. Just tell the story. He goes, okay. So I pulled the gun up, and he saw the gun, and he turned around, and he started to run, and I just started pulling the trigger. I dropped him, and I just kept pulling the trigger. I was 13 years old. I didn't count how many bullets. I just was pulling the trigger. And uh, I ran up on him, and he was screaming, and he turned to, turned to look at me. And I I pulled, pulled the gun up to his face, and I pulled the trigger. But I was out. I was out of ammo. Just click. And I knew, I knew I had to kill him. I knew I had to avenge my friend. So I started jumping on his head. I started trying to choke him. I tried to do everything I could to try and take his life. I went and found a meter lid, one of those diamond plate meter lids, just beating him, beating him. And he just goes, I, I couldn't, he wouldn't die. He, I just couldn't kill him. He wouldn't even go unconscious. Until finally, that's people started, enough people started coming around. I, I just, I just started, I ran away. I stopped him, I'm like going, oh my gosh. I'm looking at like a, you know, like a story just got really intense. And I go, dude, like you must have been a mess. You must have been a total mess. Like 13 years old, when I was 13, I was I was devastated because a girl didn't like me. I wasn't trying to avenge my debt, my best friend's drive-by shooting. He goes, yeah, I was, dude, I was weeping. I was crying, I like a, like a cry you couldn't imagine. And he's got no emotion in his face, by the way, which is tripping me out because it's like, he should have some emotion in his face, you know? And so he goes, he goes, but it's not for what you think. He goes, I was crying because I felt like I failed my best friend. Like it was my job 
to avenge his death. Like it was my job to take that guy's life and I couldn't do it, I failed. He goes, you know, from that day on, the, they beat him into the, the gang. He became a full-fledged gang member. Um, so about five years later, so nothing ever came of it, about five years later, he got, got in trouble, was in LA County, and he found out that the guy that killed his best friend was in county with him. So he began to jump through the hoops to try and get at him through gates and talk to CEO, this, that, and the other, trying to get at this guy, trying to kill him, trying to get to him. And the other guy was trying to get to him because, of course, he shot his little brother. So while this was all going down, they almost got to each other. They were they were trying to kill each other. And uh, Stefan got a notice that or the CEO came and said, hey, there's somebody here to see you. He goes, someone here to see me? Okay, I wasn't expecting anybody. He comes out to go see this kid. And sure enough, it was the kid that he had shot five years ago in the back. And he was in a wheelchair. And he could, he could tell that, obviously, he crippled him. And he thought, oh, well, this kid's coming to tell me how to get at his brother or whatever his brother's going to, he's coming to tell me threats and this, that, and the other. So Stefan sits, decides to sit down and hear what he has to say. He sits down, and the kid, 18-year-old kid at this point, he leans in and he goes, Stefan, I never turned you in. I never rolled on you. I never, I never did any of that. Do you want to know why? Stefan's going, oh, I'm a, he's getting mad. You know, I'm going to kill your brother. I'm going to get him. You guys are going down. He goes, no, no. I wanted to thank you. When you shot me that day, I was going to become a gangbanger. That was my, I was going to follow my brother's footsteps. When I was in the hospital and I found out I could never walk again, when I was in the hospital and I had to recover from all those injuries, I found Jesus. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I wanted to tell you, Stefan, first off, thank you, and I forgive you. And Stefan says that. He's, he couldn't handle it. He went off. He's yelling at him. He's going, you're just trying to play games, trying to get in my head, you know, so your brother won't, you know, so I won't kill your brother. Yada yada, they, they drag him out of there. I mean, he's mad. He's he gets back to his cell and he's punching walls. I mean, he's just mad. And uh, he goes, he goes. And then I, when I sat down, the CEO came by, and this is the first time in the story I start to see emotion on Stefan. I mean, he's got tears in his eyes. His throat's starting to choke up. He goes the the kid. He left a hundred dollars on my book. So not only did he forgive me, but yet he just gave to me. He goes in that moment, and right then and there, I knew that Jesus was real. He goes, stuff like that is not humanly possible. To forgive me for crippling him for the rest of his life, to forgive me for trying to take his life, for being spending six months to a year in the hospital. And he goes, when I was exposed to that type of grace, you know, that was it. And I'm convinced that if we show that type of grace, if we show the true love of God, people are going to either have to accept that we're crazy or that there's somebody bigger and better and more powerful inside of us.
so good to share this day with you. There was a day for Stefan when Jesus became real. Was he meant that it was the day that Jesus, who was supposedly conceived immaculately, became real? Or was it the Jesus that grew up in Nazareth, a carpenter's son, who confounded the teachers in the local synagogue, who ran away from his parents to spend some more time in teaching the teachers? Did that Jesus become real to Stefan that day? How about the Jesus that gathered some fishermen and a tax collector and set about calling people to the truth and to the light that God loves them and taught sermons and told parables and stories and turned water into wine, and he healed lepers and people that had crazy psychotic episodes and were demon-possessed. Did that Jesus become real to Stefan today, that day? How about the Jesus that was wrongfully accused, who had been the most perfectly loving person this world has ever known, who was brought before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and even the Roman governor said, hey, I, I find no fault in him. If, if you guys wanna do something, let it be on your own conscience. And when he found out that the people had turned against Jesus, even though days before they had laid palm fronds in, uh, in, in the sign that he was their king coming into Jerusalem, that those same people a few days later were demanding that he be crucified. Pilate said, well, I guess I really don't want to riot on my hands, so soldiers take him away. Did that Jesus become real to Stefan? Because all those things we can rationalize away, even the Jesus that was ultimately crucified and put in a tomb, and the stone rolled in front. Maybe those things can be rationalized away. The historical Jesus, we can be amazed at. We can marvel at the things he did, the things people said about him the impact that he left on the world, the teachings he left for us, the wisdom that he left for us. And yes, there is truth in that wisdom and it can bless your heart and save and revitalize your relationships. But did that Jesus, is that what Stefan meant when Stefan said, I knew that Jesus was real? No. The resurrection became real to Stefan that day. The resurrection. If the resurrection is true, if Jesus did really die and was buried and he stayed dead until he stinketh and he went down into the depths of the earth to reclaim the souls of those who had died in the hope 
that a Messiah would come. If that Jesus walked out of the grave and walked out of the tomb, then Jesus really is the Son of God. And if he really is the Son of God, then everything that he quoted and he taught, everything in the Bible is true. All of his miracles and his teaching and his wisdom and his grace and his mercy, the way he invited children to come and sit at his feet, the way he blessed and he beautified, all true. And that means for us, we have a problem on our hands. Why is the world filled with so much unbelief and amazement? We marvel at the historical Jesus. You know, I took my kids to see The Amazing Max. Aaron, do you remember that? Yeah, The Amazing Max. This is my son, Aaron. He wears size nine shoes. And he's in fifth grade. Yeah. It's going to be taller than daddy by junior high. But we took, we took the kids to see Amazing Max, and Max did some amazing things, right? But, yeah, he made people float. He, you know... He, he pulled things out of nowhere. He, like, he did all kinds of amazing things, and we marveled at it. But when you left, did you act as though everything that Amazing Max did was true? No. Because no. you, you know, you, you may be unable to understand what Max did. It's magic. We're fascinated with stuff. We're fascinated with stories about magic, with Harry Potter and the Marvel comics and superhero movies and all that stuff, and it's all great. We love to marvel at it, but when we leave the theater, we don't act as though it is true. And that's what we can be tempted into with Jesus. We can marvel and be amazed at the things that he did. And we can leave this morning or leave the movie and act as though it's not true. The plainest evidences don't often convince people. Even when Jesus was sitting down with Pilate and Pilate was entering into judgment with him so that God would not have to enter into judgment with us, Pilate says, okay, well, he determines Jesus is not a threat to his Roman rule. And Jesus says, he told Pilate, he said, everyone who seeks truth hears my voice. You have to want to know. You have to be seeking. You have to be willing to listen. You have to open your heart to what the Spirit would say to you. The plainest evidences won't convince you if you are determined not to believe. The good news is that even among the 12, even after Jesus came out of the grave, there was one of the 12 who refused and was bent on not believing. People call him Doubting Thomas. I would call him Amazed Thomas. He marveled at Jesus. But when the chips were down, 
when his Lord was crucified, when the sun set and darkness covered the earth, and the next day came and he wasn't alive, and the next day came and he wasn't alive, and the next day came and he wasn't alive. There was something in the heart of Thomas that was like, no, no, I'm not doing this again. I'm not, I'm not gonna be foolish again. I may have loved him because he was my friend and he did amazing things, but I am, not, I am not ready to be taken down a fool's errand again. Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. Well, let me back up. Rookie pastor. <laughs> Mary Magdalene came and found the stone rolled away and she saw that there was nobody in the tomb. So she goes and gets John and Peter who were two of Jesus' disciples, and says, somebody's taken our Lord. So they come, as the scripture says, running. And when John entered the tomb and he saw the linens folded at the end of the tomb, scripture says that John believed. It all made sense. Everything about scripture, everything that Jesus had taught him, just by seeing the empty tomb, John was like, yes, this is what Jesus meant. Victory is at hand. John and Peter left to go tell the other disciples. Then Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. She says, wow, and has a nice little conversation. And Jesus tells Mary, go to my disciples, my friends, and tell them to meet me in Galilee. And so Mary goes uh, and tells his disciples. And Thomas was with them, except a week later when his disciples were in Galilee, on the next Sabbath, on the next Sunday, they were all there except Thomas. Because Thomas didn't, he was not ready. He didn't believe what Mary had said. He was not ready to go down that road. He wasn't ready to put his heart out on the line again. So Jesus appeared to the remaining disciples and he said, peace to you, peace to you. He's like, the peace treaty, the peace that I promised, the peace treaty has been signed. You get peace now. I have made peace for you with God. And the disciples are excited and they run to tell Thomas about it, who was not there, licking his wounds. This is our scripture for this morning. John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, Thomas, they went to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands and the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side where the soldiers pierced him, I saw blood come out. Unless I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Talk about an ultimatum. Talk about setting a standard of proof that's beyond what he thought was possible. He was laying down the gauntlet. A week goes by. Another week. Thomas still hasn't seen, still hasn't heard. This time he's with his friends though. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside in Galilee and Thomas with them. Jesus came 
even though the door's being shut. There's probably some people with a shut door on their hearts this morning. Jesus can go through a shut door. And Jesus stood in the midst of them and said, peace to you. See, Thomas, you weren't there the first time. So I'm saying it to you this time. Peace to you. The peace you missed out on, I'm bringing to you today. And then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And Jesus, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, there were lots of his followers beyond the 11 that needed to see Jesus. He knew all of the ultimatums they had in their head, all of the closed doors that they had on their hearts. He knew. He knows us. He knows our frame. And John, the writers of this gospel, doesn't make a list of everything that he did. But he says, but these, what I have written down, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You know, the disciples came to Thomas in effect to say, we've seen the Lord and we we wish you had been there to see him too, for you would, have, you would have seen enough to satisfy your troubled heart. Have you ever gone to a friend who missed out on something excited? And instead of sharing in that excitement, they literally turn away to the corner? That's what Thomas did. Instead, Thomas became resentful and jealous of his friend's joy, and he protects himself from the pain of admitting his own fear might be the problem, and he resolves not to believe and throws down this ultimatum. And that ultimatum he thought was enough to keep anyone, especially Jesus, from fooling him again. And it also drew a line in the sand and separated him from his friends. You know, I have a relative who, he started to pull back from the family, from, from our friends, even from the church he was going to, because his marriage was on the rocks. He was embarrassed about it, and he was finding comfort with other women. And there were family members that 
tried to talk with him, tried to encourage him, tried to restore him. There were friends from church that tried to not judge him, but help him over and over. And finally, he threw down the gauntlet and said, unless you will accept me for who I am and what I'm doing, then I won't have anything to do with you. And he ended up starting over in another city, creating a new life from scratch, apart from his friends, apart from his, all of his former life's friends, and carrying a mortal grudge against the church and against God. How do you think Jesus saw my relative in that moment? Probably different than I saw him. I was ready to write him off. He deserved it. As he sowed, so he reaped. Not my problem anymore. Go ahead, leave. Is that how Jesus saw him? How did Jesus see Stefan from Todd's testimony? Stefan tried to commit a revenge murder on a kid, 12 years old, and was still bent on revenge. Jesus, write him off. Tell him it's too late. He got what he deserves. As he sowed, so shall he reap. No. Yes, as we sow in our sin, we shall reap. But there's good news. Jesus has something more true to offer. Jesus sent, not only saved and healed the heart of the boy, but sent him to bring a witness to Stefan that said, in a sense, Stefan, see my hands? See my side? That ultimatum you gave God? I am here so that you can see and believe. How did Jesus see me when I was far from him? When I was medicating all of my pain and disillusionment with life, with every drug I could get my hands on. Sliding from one unhealthy, hurting relationship to another because I was so hurt inside, I couldn't get out of my own way, let alone help anyone else. Jesus write me off, saying, you sowed and you reaped, you get what you deserve. Well, I was in a car, a, a car trip that looked very much like my life was going. I was too stoned to wear a seatbelt, sitting in the passenger seat, rocking out to Pink Floyd. Shine on, you crazy diamond waters. Something like that, probably. Comfortably numb. I don't know. It was loud. Stoned out of my mind. I have no idea where my life is going, what's about to happen. I had given an ultimatum to God. I had grown up amazed at Jesus, marveled, but I wasn't acting like the resurrection was true. 
I did not believe. To believe something means you act as if it's true. If you read the book of my life, you might have seen that I was funny. I was a wise crack. I was semi-intelligent. Probably more. I could get really good grades without studying. But if you read the book of my life, you would not read that Jesus was alive. You would read that I was scared. And I gave an ultimatum to God in my own heart, pretty much that said, if you can't take this ache out of my soul, this need for other people's affirmation, the need for other people to like me and need me, then I, I don't believe. But when I was throwing my life away and my life was very much like that car going super fast, before I hit a patch of gravel, the driver hit a patch of gravel and went off a cliff plunging towards the ocean, I heard a voice in the car that said, Jeff, put your feet on the dash. So I put my feet on the dashboard. I had just enough fear in me to listen. So when the car plunged down through dark and hit ocean water, I landed on my feet on the dashboard and was unhurt. And Jesus said, hey, Jeff, look at my hands. Put your hand here on my side. Most of us need to see to believe. You're in good company. Your pastor needed to see to believe. You know, the Bible says that my king, Jesus, is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the only deserving king of my heart. He was the one that didn't write me off. He was the one that said, look, Jeff, in my hands, put your hands here in my side. When I gave the ultimatum, he was the one that came to me so that I would believe. I wonder, have you seen him? Have you seen this king? Because my king is the true king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's perfectly grateful. He's dynamically powerful. He's impartially merciful. And I wonder, have you ever heard his voice? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's friend. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder today, do you believe? 
He supplies strength to the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He forgave and forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He regards the old. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder this morning, do you know him. He is the key to knowledge. He is the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway for deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway to glory. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wonder today, do you know him? I wish, I really wish I could fully describe him to you today, but we only have about 15 minutes left. He is indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You cannot outlive him with any ultimatum, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees, they couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. He is my king. And the true king has a name, Jesus. What do you need to see today to believe? What do you need to hear from heaven to believe? What ultimatum have you given the God of the universe? What door have you shut over your heart and bolted it and said no? I'm not ready to admit I'm wrong. I'm not ready to admit my hurts. I'm not ready to walk and repent and confess because I don't believe freedom is on the other side. I don't believe life is on the other side. I don't believe joy is on the I don't believe anything you're telling me. What door have you shut on your heart? What I am here to tell you today, the thing I am most fully convinced of in this world is that Jesus is good and he is alive and he can get through any door. He can answer any ultimatum word for word. One of the things that I carried even after I gave my life to the Lord, I was very scared of choosing the wrong wife because I was, I was an emotional crazy horse. And Pastor James here encouraged me. He said, Jeff, you need to go climb a mountain somewhere, sit and pray and ask the Lord to show you what your wife will look like. So I did, and I wrote down 10 things 
Not because I planned to write down 10 things, but I put my pencil to paper and wrote them down. And I don't remember what nine of them are. But number eight was one word, spunky. It was not a word I had ever used that I remember before, really or since, it's not a common word. And as I was getting to know Michelle and we were sitting down and we were having dinner one night, she said, Jeff, I know why you love me with a twinkle in her eye. And I'm like, okay, this ought to be good because there's probably a lot of reasons. And she said, it's because I'm spunky. And I thought, he read my mail. How did that happen? And I didn't say anything in the moment. Like I'm, I was too flabbergasted. And then I go and I, and I rip that little piece of paper that I had taped in and sealed in the back of my Bible. And I read through and I'm like, number eight, spunky. And then it occurred to me, Michelle's birthday is 8880. And I said, Lord, thank you. I need to see to believe. I'm easily... I'm easily torn off course. Jesus is that kind of a savior. God really is that kind of a God. What do you need to see? What do you need to hear to believe? Well, one thing is he wants to put his body in your hand and the cup that he drank from in your hand. You see, when Jesus talked with his friends and told him, hey, it's about to get real difficult around here. I'm leaving, it's gonna get crazy, but I'm coming back for you, don't worry. He didn't give them another teaching. He gave them a meal. He gave them some bread to hold in their hand and a cup to drink from, to hold in their hand. And he said, do this every time you get together to remember me. I'm not a philosophy. I'm not a great piece of wisdom. I'm not a, just a teacher. I'm not a prophet. I'm not just a priest. I am the son of God. And I have put my body, which was broken for you, in your hand. And I've put the cup that no one could drink from me. I walked the tightrope and sinned not. And I was still put to death and executed. I drank all that was in the cup that was offered me so that I can give you this cup. And when you drink, when you feel the juice or the wine going down your throat, you will know and believe that it's for you. Only in America do we have prepackaged communion. This, this is my body, said the Lord. This is the body of Christ, broken for you, that you hold in your hand. Do this in remembrance of me. This 
this is my blood that was shed for you and for many, for all of us. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every soul, any who is willing can come and drink from this cup and know that their life is safe, that they are worth saving, that God, the one true God, really does, really, really loves you. Do this as often as you gather together in remembrance of me. Do you believe Jesus is the Christ? Who died, was crucified, was buried, and yet walked out under his own power. Hallelujah. That is worth celebrating.